John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 27 through the end of the chapter in verse 50. And as we jump back into John's gospel, I'd like to note where we are in the life of Jesus. Up, up until this chapter, we've kind of seen an overview of the years uh, of Jesus' ministry, and large spans of time pass in between the story. So one thing might happen, and it might be weeks or even a year in between what has happened in John's gospel. But in this chapter, John slows down uh, really, really slow so that we might deeply meditate on the last days of Jesus before his crucifixion. You'll start to feel it in the text as we look closely. So I want us to resist this temptation to keep assuming that Jesus's death is way far off, right? I want you to kind of feel that it's close. Until Jesus is crucified in the text here, I want you to feel the tension that Jesus is alluding to. You're going to see it right off the back. He says, my soul is troubled, and I want you to go there with him. I want you to feel it. He speaks in the way he, in the ways he does because what he's doing is preparing his listeners for his impending death. It's for their sake that he's speaking in this way. But since we know where he's going, we know that Jesus is going to die, we should also resist the temptation to assume that we understand all the implications of his death. You understand what I'm saying? What his death means. Our problem is that we often kind of tune out when Jesus is preparing his listeners for things we already know are coming. We say, well, hindsight's 2020, I already know what's coming. Big whoop, right? I know, I know how it all plays out. Now, this is a mistake because Jesus isn't just teaching them how to process his coming death to better uh, their future, right, that we already know about. We already know how their future plays out. He's not just telling them this. He's telling us things also. He's teaching you about his death and how that can not just inform but transform you and about your future, which you don't already know. Right? We know in some sense Peter's future. We know uh, the disciples' future, but we don't know our future. And this is where we really miss the biblical text sometimes. We check out. Not, so I want you to combat that this morning and look at God's word with a posture of attentiveness and receptivity as we see this uh, living word speaking to us today. Amen? Let's look at the text this morning, starting in verses 27. Again, this is John 12, 27 through 50. These are the words of God, church. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me not, may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come into the world, to, but I did not come to judge the world, but came to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say as the Father has told me. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, you who has spoken to us through your son Jesus, revealed yourself to us, and we ask for help. Lord, we're looking at people who clearly saw your son Jesus, and yet they were hardened in their unbelief. So Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us eyes that we might understand what you're trying to say to us. Give us ears that we might truly hear what you're saying to us. Lord, we are approaching a very large passage of scripture, and Lord, I pray that you would help me. Um, as I preach, help us as we uh, receive your word to receive it rightly. Give us right thinking about it, Lord. As we've been praying through all this service so far, we pray for your wisdom from above. Lord, we have tendencies that would lead us away from what we should see uh, correctly, Lord. So I pray that we would hold closely to your glory as you're revealing it to us this morning in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So this is a big passage that we're looking at here, but to better understand what Jesus is doing, we need to firstly realize that Jesus is teaching. So we need to have kind of a posture as students. And I'd like to speak to some of the teachers in the room because I know that we do have teachers in the room. Pay attention to the way that Jesus is teaching. He teaches in a powerful uh, dynamic. So they don't call Jesus rabbi for no reason at all. He, He is a good teacher. So we need to pay attention and receive his words as Teaching as he's teaching us. So he begins with a rhetorical question that we do really need to see as rhetorical. He isn't actually praying that God would answer him as to what he should do about his coming. He's not saying, God, I I don't have I have no idea. What do I do? So he's he's speaking this way rhetorically so that the, the listeners might understand what he's doing. He knows what he has to do. He's helping his listeners and his followers understand what they should be thinking about what he's about to do. Right. Helping them process what is about to happen. And on this note of prayer, we should remember that anytime Jesus speaks, anytime he talks, he is revealing God to man. It's a message from God to man. Therefore, we need to see clearly that even when he prays, he's using this as a teaching moment. Even his prayers are meant to teach, to show you something. Often Jesus voices that his prayers aren't even for him, 
Therefore, the sake of those who are listening. This is why he says in verse 30, this voice has come for, for your sake, not mine. It's kind of weird the way he says that, isn't it? I'm praying so that you might see something here is what he's saying. So Jesus is teaching. He's using rhetorical devices in his teaching and placing these rhetorical devices even within prayers that evidently are not for his sake, but for the onlooker's sake. So there's just a note in how he's teaching. Okay, so at the t- same time, though, we need to realize that Jesus isn't just shooting blanks with these prayers, right? These are real prayers. This isn't just a show that Jesus is doing. It's for their sake primarily, but these are real prayers. These are live rounds of prayer. You might think of it like that, that he's lifting up to the Father. And, and we see this because there's a thundering voice from heaven that responds to him. Okay, so this further substantiates his teaching. I'm praying to God, it's for your sake, but guess what? You're going to hear something too. You're going to learn something about this. He wants it to be absolutely clear that the matter at hand is not a trivial subject. It's not just a theology lesson. It's not just how can we know more factually about the Bible. That's not what he's doing here. It's part of that, but that's not the whole subject. The subject that he's getting at is of cosmic proportions. It has to deal with everything, really. It's about the world, about the future, about the existence of mankind. And that is that Jesus is going to be lifted up, which this text tells us is a reference to his death. Jesus is going to be lifted up, and the implications are very big. Bigger than the people that are listening are going to understand even. They're going to need to look back at this one day and remember what Jesus said to fully comprehend what is about to happen. It's the judgment of this world and the consequent casting out of Satan. This is the prince of this world. That's what he's getting at here. It's really, really big. And this is the point where many of us kind of get that glazed over look because we already know this. We know Jesus dies. Spoiler alert, right? It's coming. We all know it's going to happen. Let's get on to the fun stuff, right? Let's get to Paul and start uh, digging through deep theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know that Jesus dies. We know what happens in the gospel. That's what we tend to do, isn't it? We, 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 we want to just move on. But another one of our problems is that though we know things, okay? See, I'm pointing to my mind here. Though we know things, it's in our brain. We do nothing about it. Like, this is a big problem that we have. We know a lot of things, but we don't actually do anything about it. In other words, our, our faith is dead. We have this intellectual assent, but no practical theology. Right? This is a problem. So first of all, I want to push back on the notion that you actually do understand, you fully comprehend what Jesus is really saying here. There's still more for you to learn. So I'm going to whet your appetite there. And secondly, I want to press the question to you why it actually matters for your life. Okay, so here's what it is. This is what we're going to believe. What are we going to do? Why does it matter for your life today? So do we really understand what Jesus is saying when he says that he is about to be lifted up? Do we get the full picture? Do we comprehend exactly what Jesus is saying? Because he doesn't uh, – Jesus thinks that these people don't understand it. That's why he's teaching. That's why he's getting very explicit about what he's about to say. Lifted up here is an extremely dense phrase. This is actually the third time in John's gospel that Jesus has mentioned being lifted up. I don't know if you've mentioned it or or noticed it as I've mentioned it before as we've been going through it. But he he has said, I'm going to be lifted up. This is the third time he's doing this. And all three of these are in reference to his death on the cross. But what makes this complex is not that Jesus is going to die a sacrificial death on the cross. right? We know that. We can easily see what he means by lifted up in that sense. Kind of death uh, on the cross to pay for our sins. 
It's the same sense in which Moses, uh, uh, Jesus speaks of Moses lifting up the serpent on the pole that whoever looked on it might be saved, right? This humiliating sense by death, right? We get death on the cross easily, okay? But that's not the only sense that Jesus is speaking of here. This is where we tend to miss things. This is where we need to really hone in on the text and pay attention. Why is he quoting uh, these prophets? Why is he going back to Isaiah? Why is he helping us to really understand what's going on here? Okay, here's where it gets a little bit deeper. Lifted up doesn't only refer to humiliation. It also refers to exaltation. Okay, the prophet speaks of the coming king in Isaiah who is high and lifted up. Okay, so that, that's a little bit of a different understanding. In this sense, it speaks to the elevated status of a king. You know, kings sit in lifted up in high positions, and they oversee the people. Thrones are lifted up. Scepters are lifted up to command the people. Right. So there's something deeper here. There's this complex twofold meaning to lifted up. It's paradoxically humiliation, kind of this going down motion, but it's also exaltation. It's judgment and somehow, paradoxically, salvation at the same time. This is the new and profound glory of Jesus as king. He is lifted up in humiliation, but at the hands of the people who reject him as king. And yet the divine nature has cloaked their eyes so that when they mock him with a royal robe, think of kingship, royal robe, they put this on Jesus when he's about to die. They crown him with a thorn, a crown of thorns, and they put a sign over his head that reads what? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. He actually is that king. We spoke in Sunday school lesson about how they wanted it to say he said he was king of the Jews. But that's not what God allowed. He he wanted to stay the same because Jesus really was this king that they crucified. And when you realize this, the the irony is almost too much to handle. It's chilling. It kind of cuts straight to your bones. It It can just leave you almost shaking as you contemplate the glory of Jesus on that cross. What the people were doing, what was going through their minds, what was going through his minds, and how he was trying to show them something. He was revealing something about himself to them that they completely missed. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he took the place of the serpent that was lifted up by Moses. He took that place. This was the judgment of the world. This was the moment the prince of the world, Satan, that old serpent, was cast out at his death on the cross. No longer is Satan the prince of the world. Jesus has overcome him. Jesus says, I have overcome the world to rule over it in a paradoxically glorious, humble, and exalted position as king who draws all men to himself, not by force, but by love. He lays his life down and somehow this draws people. He dies and somehow people are drawn to him by love. Now here is where the Attentiveness and receptivity that I mentioned earlier needs to be implemented. What happened when Jesus died? What happened? Now, there's obvious and verifiable facts that happened when Jesus died that are actually not as important as what those facts meant. What did they mean? And that is actually what Jesus is preparing his disciples for here. He's about to die, and this fact is going to seem like a failure on his part. It's going to seem like the the whole plan fell through. 
A man who dies a Roman death, right? These are the enemies of the Jews. A man who dies at the hands of the Romans uh, that was fueled by the information from the Jewish religious leaders. So there's the religious people. The, the, the elites reject you. Our enemies reject you. That would seem like a flop of an uprising, wouldn't it? These people have been following him. They believe in him. And then he dies. So Jesus on the cross with a crown of thorns does not look like their conception of kingship. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work in their minds. Their theology is kind of blown up by it. It looks like shameful, tragic failure in their eyes. But here, Jesus is teaching his disciples that everything that you're about to experience in the coming days is going to look actually nearly its opposite of what it is. It's going to be kind of upside down. It's it's an upside down kingdom. And that is the power of God. In this upside-down kingdom, the judgment of this world, here's where we have problems and where I'm speaking to you this morning, speaking to your minds, speaking to the ways that we understand Scripture. The judgment of this world, we think, looks like Jesus returning from heaven, wiping out the population that's not yet accepted him. That's what we think. But Jesus very clearly says that the judgment of this world has already come. Okay, This is... Hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Now is the judgment of this world, verse 31. Now. Okay? And if that doesn't mess up your eschatological hairdo, then keep on reading. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Okay? This is hard for us to swallow. Many of you in here, and myself even used to, have this eschatology eschatology that always looks forward to Jesus when he will be king. Jesus will be king one day, when Jesus will inaugurate his kingdom here on earth, when Jesus will judge this world, when Jesus will cast Satan out. But Jesus says, now, now is when this is happening. And perhaps this eschatology stems not only from a wrong understanding, but even a disordered love of the cross. In other words, maybe it's not just a head, head problem. Maybe it's a heart problem as well. Okay, perhaps we don't really see and understand the glory of Jesus most clearly on the cross because we don't love that kind of glory, as it says in verse 43. We love a different kind of glory, a glory that comes from the world. We have a different conception in our minds because we love different things. We've fallen in love with a different kind of glory, a worldly glory. Okay? Perhaps we've even been peer pressured, even by the religious people of our day, perhaps we've been peer pressured into believing and loving a glory that does not see the true glory of the cross. The paradoxically humble and exalted king, the one who simultaneously judges the world and saves it in one fell swoop, does it all at once, at the same time, on the cross. It's at the cross. Have we been missing the point where he does all this? The one who saves the world by dying for it, not instead of it. The one who draws all men to himself in his kingdom by his self-sacrificial love, by the cross. That's the moment that we sometimes want to move right past. What happened when Jesus died? Now, these are the heart and head questions that Jesus is preparing his followers for. When they say in verse 34, if you want to look there in the text, we've read in the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? What they're doing here is wrestling with the same head and heart issues that we are if we don't see the kingdom implications on the cross. 
Right? We have this way of separating kingdom and atonement in two separate uh, boxes. Kingdom doesn't fit with the cross. Right? We, in, in our minds, we want to think that kingdom is future, cross is backwards, and we want to just completely ignore the fact that we live in the present. Right? We want to uh, disjoin these two. Their hearts desired justice more than mercy, as ours often do. And they wanted to see the king who uh, comes to judge the world by wiping out the world, saving the chosen, who of course is me, right? Leaving them essentially with no work left to do. That's what they want. We talked about this again in Sunday school lessons. Cool how God kind of weaves these things together. We, uh, we want God to, in some sense, treat us like babies. Where he does all the work, we just sit back and he kind of just spoon feeds us, right? That's what we often want. And this is what many of us believe Jesus will do. He'll return, wipe out the world, and save me. And those, and like those in this story, familiar with the law, we want the king of Isaiah 6, right? High and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father. But we don't fully comprehend what Jesus was looking forward to. We want that king status, but we aren't willing to see it through the lens of the cross, are we? It's hard for us to connect these two things. Jesus is showing us here that that king of glory is Jesus. And you're going to see that most clearly with Jesus on the cross, okay? But his lifting up doesn't look like what we expected, right? That phrase, that lifted up, we just think uh, a death. We don't think about the kingship element. We, like the onlookers, question Jesus. We've read in the law, the scriptures, that that isn't how it plays out. This doesn't fit our theology. How can you say these things, Jesus? You don't fit our box. So John steps in to quote from the Old Testament, from uh, Isaiah, uh, and he quotes in verse 38 through 40, to confirm that Jesus' teaching wasn't false, they just aren't fully understanding it right. right. It was the refusal to hold humiliation and exaltation simultaneously together on the cross that made them disbelieve him. They were unwilling to put these things to, uh, together. Okay, He didn't fit their box. And there's many times when Jesus doesn't fit our box. It doesn't quite make sense to us, and it kind of just uh, paralyzes us, leaves us with nothing to do. So if you look at verse 41, where it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Okay, We get a reminder that we're talking about glory still. Glory should be on our minds. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. What again was it that Jesus was teaching us to pray for in verse 28? Father, glorify your name. Okay? And what thundered in response that many of us probably just glanced over and kept on reading? Give me the fun stuff. What was the response? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what is the point that many of us probably missed? What did we miss as we read right through that? Well, this is the point. Jesus is emphatically telling you that the glory of the kingdom is on the cross. That's where it's at. Don't miss the glory there and always be looking somewhere else. The passage that John quotes from here in Isaiah begins in chap- with the same chapter. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So John quotes this to show that though the Lord truly is king, there's still going to be disbelief about his coming. Because lifted up means more than their minds could wrap around. They're not seeing the full picture. There's more to what Isaiah is saying here in his kingship passage. There's going to be death. There's going to be exaltation. There's going to be a a, a conglomeration of a lot of things going on. This one lifting up that Jesus does. The moment where the world thought Satan won was actually the victory moment. And it was not at the second coming. Okay? 
He was at the first coming. The second coming is the culmination of the kingdom. And if you're trying to write down notes and figure out theology here and get the the head part of this straight, the second coming is the culmination, not the inauguration of the kingdom. Right? The kingdom started at the cross. The culmination is when Jesus returns after he's drawn all men to himself in a sweeping victory, after he's put all enemies under his feet, even death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul tells us. So there's a lot of work to do. The kingdom has already started on the cross, and we now see the glory of Christ most clearly on the cross. If you want to see the kingdom, look to the cross. Okay? As Isaiah did, I saw the Lord. I saw the king of glory. The glory filled the earth, not heaven, filled the earth when I saw him there, is what Isaiah is saying. It's not a worldly glory. It's a new kind that we're not used to. It's a new way of living in the light, as it says in verse 35 and 36. So let's go there. What about Jesus being the light? You know, we always talk about how great the kingdom of heaven will be. Can't wait for the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus will be that light that illuminates all things. We go to Revelation 21 that says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the, slow down, listen, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations. We might say Gentiles. The nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Okay? Have you noticed that there isn't a temple in Jerusalem anymore? Have you noticed that there hasn't been a a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD when God judged the nation of Israel for rejecting their king, never to rebuild it again? It has not been rebuilt. Why? Because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is that new temple. Jesus is what else? He is, as it says in uh, John 8:12. Jesus is the light of the world. Why are we waiting for it? Why aren't we seeing it when it's right there before our eyes? Jesus is the light of the world, not will be. He will draw all men to himself by the glory of the cross, and this glorious light the nations will walk in. The kings will come to it. The Gentiles walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, the, the world is going to see that this is not uh, – th- their understanding of glory and kingship doesn't work. They're going to come, and they're going to come to the kingdom. And they're going to bring their glory into it to trade in what they have for what the true king has. Okay, This is Jesus' inaugural plans being revealed to the people, and they argue with Jesus, Jesus because it doesn't fit their eschatology. It's sad. It's sad. So here's the big question. In light of this text, or maybe I should say it this way, in the light of Jesus, in the light of Jesus glorifying himself through this text, how are you going to walk? Okay, so there's, we've got the head knowledge. We know what Jesus says about his kingdom. We know what it says. What are you going to do about it? How does this teaching affect your life? What are you supposed to do with what you have just been taught? Now, I ask because many people are still waiting for these things to happen, okay? Not just the Jews who reject the Messiah, but Christians who don't see the connection between the kingdom of God and the cross. They still refuse to bring these two things together. Once you see this connection, you realize that the judgment of the world, the casting out of Satan, was a pivotal moment in history. Was a pivotal moment in history. But you also perennially see that it's happening all the time. Right? You look back and you also see it's still happening because the kingdom is still growing like a mustard seed, getting bigger and bigger. You realize the kingdom implications are kind of sweeping upon you once you see this connection. So seeing life through the lens of the cross 
allows you to do, as Paul says, to, to judge the world. Not in a damning, a damning sense, but in a redemptive sense. We're seeing the world in a whole new light that allows us to actually bring kingdom change, to be co-laborers with Christ as he's called us to. It allows us to resist the devil and he will flee from you, not the other way around. That's, that's new, having that kind of power. That, that is different, where we have power to sell, tell Satan, flee, resist him, and he flees away from you. Why? Because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He's not king anymore. He doesn't have that authority over you. Okay? Could this actually bring about change in your everyday living to where you aren't looking forward to what Jesus will do for you, but looking backward to what he's already done, which empowers you to walk in the light today? And take that phrase to heart, not just saying, yeah, we walk in the light. He's in the light. No, what does that actually mean? Walk in the light of Jesus. Doing things, walking in the light today. Because there's a way of living that always looks forward to what Jesus will do that paralyzes us uh, realizing that we're just waiting for something to happen. We don't even know exactly what it is, but we're waiting for God to just do all the work for us. Jesus, fix all my problems. Take them away. Right? We're waiting for Jesus to fix the problems that he said are already finished and fixed. You just have to do something about it. It is finished. What are you going to do about the finished work of Jesus? How are you going to live in light of that? We are waiting for Jesus to do the good works that he prepared us to walk in. Think about that. By grace we've been saved. He's prepared us beforehand for good works to walk in them. Why are we waiting for Jesus to walk in those works when he's called us to walk in those works? You see the difference this can make? When we start to see the connection between the cross and the kingdom. If we truly believed we were living in the kingdom, walking by the light, and remembering that Satan is cast out, this might give us the power that we need to substantiate the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Where we actually believe the things that we pray every Sunday. On earth as it is in heaven. It might make you practice the, thing that, the things that Jesus tells you because you're compelled to, to love others by the love of Christ revealed by the glory on the cross. You're compelled, you're constrained is the way uh, some translations put it. It moves you by his love. Whereas you might have been intimidated by Satan, intimidated by the prince of the world, you have in your mind that the global elites will somehow rule the world. You can recognize, no, Jesus is king. Satan's been cast out. What are we going to do? Go, therefore. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What? Go. Do something about it. Don't wait for me to do something about it. You go. Disciple the nations. How are you discipling the nations, church? How are you actually living into what Jesus has called you to do? Maybe this means that you look at the world in a fundamentally different way. I hope it does. I hope that we put on kind of new gospel glasses to where we connect kingdom and cross together, to where we are actually on mission doing things. A way that sees events through a cross-centered life. This changes things when you look at what's going on in your life. Yes, the loss of your job may be humiliating. It may feel like a loss. But how does this paradoxically speak to the, the glory in this? Right? What is God doing that's deeper than what just seems like a failure, what seems like shame, what seems like absolute uh, a flop? How might God be preparing me for something better? Where's the resurrection? What's coming after this? Right? Maybe it means you're already doing these things well, but maybe you just need to relax. Maybe you need to relax and rest assured that you're not the one upholding the kingdom. Jesus is king. You can take a breath. You can relax and realize that I'm not doing all of this. I'm resting in Jesus who's finished the work, and I'm just called to be along his side. Right? We can get all tied up thinking, oh my goodness, how, how, am, I, how am I going to be the king of this kingdom? And Jesus said, you're not the king of the kingdom. You're a servant of the king. 
You're called to walk alongside me. You're called to even rule and reign with me and judge with me. Uh, but you're not the ultimate judge. You're not the king. You're not the one that is doing this all. Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the world. And perhaps the most practical thing that this teaching does is is it teaches us to live and pray like Jesus. Okay? You can say with honesty to your father just like Jesus. Look back at verse 27. Take a deep breath. My soul is troubled. You feel that? Anyone in the the church this morning feel that? My soul is troubled. Just like Jesus says in verse 27, you confess life's hard. This is difficult. Suffering is real. But as you confront your hardship, you learn not to pray for removal from the situation. Notice how Jesus prays there. Shall I pray that this goes away? Shall I pray that I be removed from this situation? No, you don't despair because God allowed it to happen to you. Why? Because there's purpose for you to be in this hour. Just like Jesus had purpose for being in that hour. It was hard. Really hard. Just like Jesus, you realize there's meaning even in pain. Even in suffering. Even in death. Okay? There's a cloaked glory at hand. When you you feel the thorns pierce your head, you remember this isn't just shame. This is glory. It's a crown of glory. From the the sweat on your brows, you work very hard. You're remembering you're human, but you pray, nevertheless, not my will be done. Yours be done, even if your sweat turns to blood like Jesus. Because it's hard. Because it's hard. In the midst of trial, we pray for what? Glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. It's not about me. Father, glorify your name. So we stalwartly, Accept the glory of the cross. And that looks like living a cruciform-shaped life, walking in the light of Jesus. As we behold the glory of the Lord who is lifted up in that full and complex sense in the hour of trial, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. When we look at his glory, we become like it and we're changed. We're actually starting to do the things that he's called us to do, not just to have a head knowledge about it. We start to see more and more that Jesus is preparing us for an abundant life when he taught about his kingdom and his cross, the two together. He wasn't just giving uh, uh, giving us himself on the cross. He was, but he was giving us his word by which we are judged. Okay, He's telling you, I'm telling you, this is what you do. Believe it. Trust in it. He was calling us uh, to to come into his world and to to walk by his light, this kingdom, this new thing that he's doing here. And it's our responsibility to then walk in that light. Look at his word, believe it, and walk in the light. Not wait for it to come one day off. Not, Jesus, I'm praying that one day you're going to be my light. No, today. Today is the day. While you have the light, believe in the light, Jesus says, that you may become sons of light. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to say these things and so hard to do them. We pray, Father, that you would connect our heads to our hearts, that we might be able to actually live these things out. We don't want to spin our wheels here in a 